Uh, like you, uh, our family has been spending a lot more time at home these last few weeks. And uh, one of the challenges for our family, which usually the spring is full of soccer games and baseball games and uh, a lot of sports in our house, uh, I've had to find new ways to waste my time rather than watching because there are no new sports uh, to consume. And uh, believe it or not, that's more of a challenge than you, than you might believe. Uh, one option I've delved into is actually watching old sports uh, instead. I've enjoyed watching classic championship games from uh, my younger years uh, for my favorite teams. And I've even deigned to watch The Last Dance about Michael Jordan and uh, the Chicago Bulls. You know, as I've watched and read, uh, read folks talking about these uh, sports past, I've noticed something that I call selective starting point syndrome. Uh, if you haven't heard of it, don't be surprised. I, I just made it up, actually. Uh, but selective starting point syndrome works, it works like this. Uh, you pick a particular time and determine how things ought to have gone from that time forward. For example, uh, my beloved bad boys Pistons. Now I say beloved not that I would vote for any of them for deacon in our church. God forbid uh, that should happen. Uh, but they were the gritty underdogs of my teenage years and they were my team. I cheered for them. I rooted for them. Now, selective starting point syndrome sufferers say things like, did you know that if it weren't for a bad call against Bill Lambeer and a bad pass from Isaiah Thomas, they should have won three or four championships during their time together? Now, believe it or not, this ailment is more popular, more common than you might think. Uh, others uh, suffering from the same disorder say things like, uh, the Detroit Tigers would have won the World Series if not for one bad pitch to David Ortiz in 2011. It happens. I hear it. Uh, now, Detroit Lions fans can do this as well. It, they just have to work a lot harder to find that particular point in time uh, to start from. Now, I know many of you don't care about sports, and so I'm going to invite you to come back in uh, because, believe it or not, a selective starting point syndrome does not affect just sports fans. Many a marriage has been cross-infected. Tell me if this does not sound familiar. Uh, a wife says something in an unkind tone of voice. The husband thinks, if he's wise, or says, if he is not wise, why do you always overreact? The wife thinks or says, well, if you didn't have a pattern of ignoring my warnings, I wouldn't have to overreact. And the husband thinks or perhaps says, uh, if you would just trust me for once in your life, everything would be fine. The wife, if you would just give me some credit and listen, it would be easier for me to trust. Uh, the husband, drifting farther away from wisdom, says, if you would just, well, actually, let's just stop right there. Each person sees, the point is, that each person suffering from selective starting point syndrome sees their actions and reactions as perfectly reasonable. It just depends on the starting point that you select. Uh, this morning, I would like us to look together at Isaiah, where we will see that the people of Israel also suffered from selective starting point syndrome. And more disturbingly, we might see that this disorder continues to affect the people of God today. Uh, I'd invite you to turn to Isaiah chapter 5, uh, and we'll read uh, verses 1 through 7. Uh, before, we, before we read this passage, we do need to, to sort out a couple of things that will make the passage a little bit more clear. 
Uh, as you read, you'll notice that in verse 1, uh, it talks about me and my. It uses those pronouns. And we need to, at the outset, say those refer to Isaiah, uh, the speaker. He is going to be uh, declaring a, a love song uh, between his beloved and his beloved's vineyard. The me and my in verse 1 refers to Isaiah. The beloved is talking about God. It makes that crystal clear in verse number 7. And the vineyard is the people of Israel and the people of Judah. Uh, what gets a little confusing is about halfway through, uh, the pronouns change uh, because Isaiah is a, is a prophet. He's speaking on behalf of God. And so in the middle of the passage, it will start to talk about I, but it's talking about God himself and how he views his vineyard. Now, Isaiah was a prophet who lived 700 years before Christ was born. Uh, he lived in a day uh, that the people of Israel, both the northern, tribe, uh, northern tribes and the, the tribes of Judah in the south, uh, were under intense pressure uh, from the Assyrian army. Uh, it was a time of trial and tribulation for people. And, and Isaiah sings this love song uh, to help the people to see themselves in a different light. Uh, like us, they get locked into a certain way of thinking, usually justifying their own actions and, and blaming others. And, and Isaiah tells this, shares this love song to draw them in so that they can see themselves in a different light. His desire is for them to pick the right starting point. Uh, Isaiah chapter 5. Uh, actually, we're going to begin just reading verses 1 through 4. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved, that's God, had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it, and he cleared it of stones. He planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it, and he hewed out a wine vat in it, and he looked for it to yield grapes but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there for me to do for my vineyard that I have not done for it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? Uh, Isaiah's song uh, naturally breaks into four sections. Uh, first two we have read. Verses 1 and 2, he talks about the devotion of the vine keeper. In verses 3 and 4, he talks about a decision for the audience. A little bit look, uh, later, we'll look at verses 5 and 6, the verdict of the vine keeper, and then a final word of commentary from Isaiah. Uh, but first, the devotion of the vine keeper. Uh, Isaiah describes his vine keeper as one who has carefully selected a plot of land to, to build uh, and lay out a vineyard. Uh, now, an ancient vine dresser, uh, an ancient person would be more familiar with vine dressing than probably most of us, with the possible exception of Dan Spoolstra and a few others uh, in our church. Uh, but for them, they would know that, that uh, setting up a vineyard was a multi-year process. Uh, first, there'd be, in the first year, a clearing of the land, a, a digging out of stones, of, of laying down terraces and retaining walls uh, so that the vines could receive maximum sunshine. Uh, in year number two, there'd be a planting of the vines, but still no harvest, uh, and an approving of the vineyard. Uh, in this passage, it talks about building a watchtower for the protection of, uh, of the vineyard from enemies or from thieves, uh, and then a hewing out of a wine vat 
in order to, to cultivate the wines and to turn it into, into wine. And not, it was not until year three, after this uh, planting and improving, uh, that the harvest would actually come. Isaiah lovingly describes uh, God's developing of his vineyard, his people of Israel, his preparation, his planting, his protection. In preparation, I'm sure Isaiah was thinking of, uh, of Genesis 12:1, when God chose Abraham, promised uh, to make him a, a people and a nation, to bless him and to bless all peoples become, uh, because of him. Um, he was preparing Abraham for something greater than he knew. Uh, I'm sure, uh, after, as God, Isaiah was thinking God fulfilled that promise. He made uh, Abraham into a great nation. And he was thinking of the redemption uh, of Israel out of Egypt, uh, when, they rescued him out, when God rescued them out of bondage from slavery. Uh, the choosing, the redeeming, the crossing of the Red Sea. Uh, I'm sure Isaiah, was, as he thought of the planting, he thought of uh, the people of Israel being brought out of Egypt and to the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey, uh, perhaps visioning God knocking down the walls of Jericho and bringing them to a land of their very own. Uh, then protecting. He protected them. Uh, God consistently defended them against their enemies, protecting them, both conquering as they come into the land and then once they were in their land, showing himself faithful again and again. Uh, and even when they sinned uh, and they, when they fell to their enemies, when they repented, God rescued them again and again. Uh, the Lord of hosts rescued them each and every time. God is a good vine keeper who has devoted everything for the cultivation and the development of his people. So why does Isaiah sing this song? Because you know the song uh, takes a turn uh, in the middle. Uh, God says, I came to my vineyard and I looked for grapes. Uh, I looked for something to, to harvest from my people but I was disappointed. Uh, verse number 7 makes that clear. In verse 7 he says, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. He looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. Why does Isaiah sing this love song about a vine keeper and his vineyard? Uh, I suppose it is because as the people looked around, and they saw the Assyrian armies marching on their borders and conquering their cities, uh, that, that many of them were saying, you know, it doesn't seem like God's doing a very good job taking care of his people. Where is he? Why is he not taking care of us? Why doesn't he do something? But when God looked at the same circumstances, he said, I think you're suffering from selective starting point syndrome. God says, do you remember the Red Sea? Do you remember the walls of Jericho? My love and my devotion, my care for you began far beyond this day. And what happens now needs to be considered in light of what has come uh, before. Don't you remember the great works that I had done for you? Now perhaps you say, you know what, that's great for the people of Israel. They had, they had miraculous things that happened to them. Uh, the plagues that God sent on Egypt, the crossing of the Red Sea, the fall of the wall of Jericho, providing of food and water in the wilderness, all of these amazing things that God had done. Uh, but, but what about us? But what about us? Well, let, let me remind you that, that Isaiah lived about 700 uh, B.C. Uh, and the events of 
of Abraham's day and Moses' day were centuries prior, probably 700 years prior. Uh, not quite as distant as ours from the days of Christ, uh, but something that was ancient history for them. And they, like us, are tempted to say, you know what, my starting point for evaluating how God is dealing with me, it, it maybe starts last week or maybe six weeks ago. Uh, it doesn't extend very far back. Uh, but what God say to us, as he said to the people of Israel, I've showered you with every good and perfect gift. James 1, that Pastor Jared read earlier. Uh, would, he, would he turn our attention to Ephesians chapter 1 that says, I blessed you with every spiritual blessing in Christ. In fact, I'd invite you to turn there if you have your Bibles. And even though we're on video, you should have your Bible in front of you and be reading from it. Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now, what are these spiritual blessings? Uh, they're enumerated in the, in the verses to come. Uh, first, he says, you're chosen before the foundation of the world uh, in verse 4. Uh, God chose us not based on our merit, uh, but before the foundation of the world, he chose us uh, to display his grace in us and through us. Uh, in verse number 5, it says that he predestined us to be adopted as his children. He brought us into his family and made us uh, his own. In verse number 7, it's, we are redeemed at the, cross, at the cost of Christ's own blood. Also in verse 7, he talks about the forgiveness of sins that we've experienced, uh, all of it according to the riches of his grace. In verse 11, he says we've obtained an inheritance because we have been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. In verse 13, he says we've been sealed and given the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is our seal that guarantees that our future is secure. Uh, when God looks at us, he says we need to, we need to go back in time uh, to see what I have done for you if you're to rightly uh, discern the way things ought to be. You may have started keeping score in the wrong place. Now, is this really a big deal? You know, as I thought about that, a vision came to my mind. Have you ever had a child say to you, you aren't the boss of me? I know it's more common for them to say to their older siblings, but sometimes those things get said even to a parent. And you know, the easiest response to that question is, well, I'm bigger and stronger than you, so yeah, I am the boss of you. But the better response and the one that lasts longer, because sooner or later, those, sometimes those kids do get bigger and stronger than you. Now, the better response is, is, to be honest, I find tougher to put into words. But it's what I would like my children to know and to believe. Now, what I'd like to say to a child when he says that to me is, is that I know it feels like I'm trying to be the boss who's trying to control you, but you've really picked the the wrong starting point. Uh, your story starts in a hospital room. And I, when I look at you, I see a child that I brought home from there and that I loved and I cared and I provided for as best that I could, uh, that I sought to protect you from the worst that the world has to offer. And I've tried to guide you to make the best possible decisions. 
In fact, I've sacrificed a lot for you, but, I, but to be honest, I can't really say that out loud because you think I'm trying to make you feel guilty. But I'm not. I just wish you'd look a little bit farther back and see and know and believe that I love you and that I am for you and I want what's best for you. And that is why I do what I do. You know, I think this is especially troubling for, for second and third generation Christians. Uh, these are, are Christians with Christian parents or grandparents, maybe extending back in multiple generations. Uh, because Christ's work, to be honest, may seem as far, as far ago to them as the Red Sea did to the folks in Isaiah's day. Uh, but these second and third generation Christians have to say, you know what, uh, what Christ has done is just as real in my life as it was for that first generation Christian, whether it be my parents or grandparents or farther along, farther ago. And God would like to say, you know what, if you know where you would be if it hadn't been for my grace poured out for you, you'd know that I love you. I'm not trying to dictate to you. I'm not trying to control you. I love you, and I want you to follow me. The devotion of the vine keeper. He lovingly prepares his vineyard. Uh, secondly, uh, in Isaiah 5, we see the judgment. Uh, a judgment by the audience. Uh, back in Isaiah chapter 5, uh, Isaiah turns and he says, And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, Judge between me and my vineyard. Um, see, in this place, as Isaiah speaks for God, uh, the pronouns change, and now it is, is God himself speaking, and through Isaiah, his spokesman. He says, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to, for me to do for my vineyard that I have not done? Uh, when I looked for it to, to yield grapes, those choice vines that I planted, yet they produced wild grapes. What does God do? He asks he asks the vineyard. Isaiah asks the, the people to judge between him and the vineyard. He's asking the people to identify with the vineyard instead of as uh, to identify with the vine keeper rather than with the vineyard. Uh, their natural tendency was to uh, was to protect themselves and judge themselves. But Isaiah tells this story because he says, "Can you see things from the perspective uh, from the time of the vine keeper?" And when they do, he asks the question, has God been negligent? Is it unfair in some way for God to expect righteousness? If you pick the right, wrong starting point, it might feel like it. It might feel like, hey God, what are you doing? What is happening in my life right now? Uh, but God says, you know what? When we have a proper perspective, when we pick the right starting point, not only did God pour out his grace, it was not at all unreasonable for him to expect a gratitude and an obedient response from the people that he had done everything for. Uh, the audience, they said, obviously, uh, the vine keeper is right to expect a good harvest, the fruit uh, of his labors. Uh, the, Isaiah quickly, in verses 5 through 6, moves on to the verdict of the vine keeper. Uh, while he invites the people to, to look at themselves with through new eyes, uh, ultimately God is the vine keeper and the final judgment is with him. And, and what is the vine keeper's verdict? He says, now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. 
I will remove its hedge. It shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste, and it shall not be pruned or hoed. And briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain, that they rain no rain uh, upon it. What's very interesting about uh, this is, uh, it's, is that the judgment that God pronounces on this is not an a, a active judgment, it is a passive judgment. Uh, what God says is, my judgment on my vineyard is that uh, I will not do something to do, uh, I'm just going to go back in time, back to that starting point, and say, what would happen if I removed all the things that I have done? Uh, in verse 5, he says, let, let me remove the hedge. Uh, those stones that I dug out of this field and, and piled around to defend you uh, from animals coming in and uh, wreaking havoc. I'll remove the hedge uh, and I will break down the wall and it will be trampled and devoured. He says, uh, I'm going to remove, uh, I'm going to stop dressing the vines. He says, it shall, uh, I'll no longer prune or hoe it and briars and thorns shall come. He says, you know what, I'll no longer send rain because you must remember that I am God and even the rain that you receive that, that seemed to be what is owed to you is a grace from God. Sometimes when bad things happen, we say, what is God doing to me? Uh, why, is he, why is he making this happen? What are you doing? Uh, but God's question is very different. He says, do you realize what I have actively been doing for you? You know, since last week uh, when Pastor Chris preached on uh, the forgiven, uh, will forgive, uh, one question has stuck in my mind over this past week. And that question is, why does God's mercy seem so pedestrian to us? Why does it seem so, so ordinary and commonplace, something that we're, we're entitled to? And as I thought about that, there's probably a lot of reasons, but, but one of those reasons, I think, is that we often look at grace as something that is very passive. Grace is, is something that is the, the natural state for God. Well, he, he's God. He has to be nice. He has to forgive. It's his nature. It's what he must do. Uh, but God doesn't look at grace as something that is passive. It is something that is active. His work on behalf of his people, whether the people of Israel or our own lives, is something that is decidedly active. And judgment only requires God to remove the grace that he has poured out uh, on us. If he removes that grace, his active uh, protection and care uh, for us, uh, the natural effect of sin results in trampling and devouring and briars and thorns and drought. Uh, that is the result. Uh, just God removing his grace and his pleasure from us. If you're a believer, have you received grace? Or have you grown tired? I, I know you have if you, have, uh, if you are a believer. You have received grace. But have you grown tired of it or accustomed to it? Does it seem commonplace and something that, that is normal? Are you grateful uh, for it? Uh, God's a statement to us, I believe, is he says, you know what, are you picking the right starting point? for considering your life? Are you going back far enough to see where you were and where you would be without my active grace poured out uh, for you? 
you know, in a minute, this sermon is going to come to an end, and Pastor Jared and Callie are going to come up and sing. And uh, I would encourage you, as you're, uh, many of you are gathered, uh, maybe as a couple or as a family, uh, but I would like you to ask yourselves a question uh, after uh, this service comes to a close. And that question is, uh, when did God's grace begin to work uh, in you? Uh, what is the proper starting point? You know, for some of you, that story might begin uh, when you heard the gospel. Uh, and responded to it. Uh, for some of you, it may extend back a generation or a generation before, and maybe now would be a day to talk about that uh, with your children uh, and your family. Uh, but the fact of the matter is that God's grace has been poured out us richly and actively. And, and if we pick the wrong starting point, we'll miss the true story of what God has done. Uh, but if we see ourselves in the grace that we've received through God's eyes, uh, we will know that we are truly blessed, that God's goodness and his mercy is, is uh, from times past and are new evermore. Uh, our God is good. Let's close in prayer. Dear Father, uh, I thank you uh, for this story that invites me and all of us to, to look at our lives again, uh, to see how your grace has been at work, how you have been at work uh, preparing and planting and protecting us uh, every step of the way. We thank you for your grace for us, and we help that you, we ask for your, uh, the continuing grace to even be able to see each of ourselves in light of what you have done for us. Uh, Lord, uh, in the trials that we're faced with right now, uh, we know that they will come to an end. And uh, Lord, as, uh, as we grow weary at times, I pray that you would fill us again uh, with the joy of what you have done for us. We love you, Lord, and we pray this in Jesus' name.